If you would, please turn to Psalm 46. If you don't have a Bible with you, please use uh, one of the blue ones in the back of the pew in front of you. You'll find the psalm on page 522. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, please take that blue one with you. It's yours. We want you to have it. Charles Dickens wrote the famous novel, A Tale of Two Cities. To introduce our sermon this morning, I want to tell you a very brief tale of two saints that center around one city. For hundreds of years, Rome had been the center of civilization. The world's greatest leaders, the mightiest armies, the best legal system, the most advanced engineering, the finest art, and noblest literature had all emanated from Rome. Poets called it the Eternal City. After Roman Emperor Constantine's conversion, many came to associate Rome with Christianity itself. But in AD 410, the unthinkable happened. After taking all the rest of Italy, Visigoth armies penetrated Rome's defenses and sacked the city. Rome had fallen. Reactions to this earth-shaking event are contrasted in two Christian scholars who were alive at the time, Jerome and Augustine. Jerome was crushed and despondent. He wrote, when the bright light of all the world was put out, or rather, when the Roman Empire was decapitated, the whole world perished in one city. He asked, if Rome can perish, what can be safe? Augustine, in contrast, responded with his monumental work, The City of God, in which he argued that earthly kingdoms will always fall, but that Christians find stability and hope in their citizenship in heaven, which is a kingdom that has entirely different values and an eternal destiny. So, which of these two great men, are we more like this morning? Are we more like Jerome, or are we more like Augustine? How do we respond when unthinkable things actually happen? What do we do when things that seemed like they would never change, not only change, but disappear? Can you think of a crisis that you've witnessed in the past, or perhaps are in the middle of right now, that turns your world upside down. Well, Psalm 46 was written for such situations. So let's listen to the word of the Lord. If you're following in the ESV, you'll notice that I've changed a few words, and I'll explain that later. Psalm 46, hear the word of the Lord. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth changes, though the mountains topple into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be toppled. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations roar 
the kingdoms topple. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, perceive the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's begin by looking at the structure of the psalm. The structure is, in fact, easy to see. There are three stanzas, uh, each one ending with this word, Selah. Stanza one is verses one through three. Stanza two is verses four through seven. And stanza three is verses eight through 11. There's probably a little space in the Bibles that uh, separate those for you. Notice also that at the end of verse, uh, the second stanza, verse 7, is identical to verse 11. This is a refrain or a chorus that ends stanzas 2 and 3. So we'll want to connect them together. You might be wondering what that word selah means. Well, so is everybody else. This appears to be something that has been lost to the knowledge of the world. Um, sometimes it marks the end of sections, as in our psalm today. Sometimes, though, it clearly comes in the middle of a section, sometimes even in the middle of a sentence. The scholars haven't been able to find uh, any pattern. Um, of the various theories that I've read, this one's my favorite. David is singing a psalm, he's playing his harp, and Selah. That's what David said when he broke a string. So, you can make of that what you wish. Um, it could happen anywhere, see? You just don't know. But uh, the sons of Korah, to whom Psalm 46 is attributed, uh, seem to have used Selah to mark off these stanzas. So that helps us in Psalm 47. Here's a summary of the message of each stanza, which will form our outline this morning. And diligent note-takers, don't worry. I will give these to you later. Stanza 1, verses 1 through 3. Fear not. God is near when everything else falls apart. Stanza 2, which is verses 4 through 7, God protects those who take refuge in him. And stanza 3, verses 8 through 11, God will ultimately establish perfect peace and stability. So let's dive in. Stanza 1. Verse 1 and the first part of verse 2 give us the main message of the whole psalm. It's right there at the opening. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. This translation of very present help in trouble has a long history in English translations. The Hebrew more literally says that God is help in trouble, being found very much. The uh, Christian Standard Version, I think, translates it quite well. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. 
If we really believe that, the obvious response is that we will not fear. And the rest of the psalm is there to help us really believe that. Uh, As we've seen from Psalm 42 and 43, uh, the psalmists know that we need more than just an intellectual truth to calm our fears. We need to feel this truth in our hearts. And in order to feel it in our hearts, we need to talk to ourselves. We need to continually and deliberately remind ourselves of what's true and meditate on those truths. So consequently, Psalm 46 gives us material to meditate on, things to remind our hearts of. The rest of stanza one portrays the most extreme situation one could imagine. Uh, Even then, though, it exhorts us not to fear because God is our refuge and strength. Verse two, therefore we will not fear though the earth changes, though the mountains topple into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The ESV is a bit dramatic in translating when, though the earth gives way, when the Hebrew word simply means to change. But the psalmist does portray cataclysmic change. Some interpreters are inclined to take the language literally, but it's more likely metaphorical. Mountains in scripture often symbolize nations as when the prophet says, it shall come to pass in latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Waters in scripture sometimes symbolize nations or the peoples of nations, especially peoples involved in warfare or rebellion. Isaiah speaks of an invasion by Assyria this way. The Lord is bringing up against Judah the waters of the river, that would be the river Euphrates, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its... If we look ahead momentarily to the second stanza, verse 6, the psalmist tells us uh, in plain language what his meaning is. Verse 6 says, the nations roar. It's the same word used of the waters in verse 3. The kingdoms topple. The same word used of the mountains in verse 2. What we have in stanza 1 then is a hyperbolic description of of, uh, this tremendous political upheaval. Nations that once seemed unconquerable disappear. Mighty armies raise their battle cries and all the remaining kingdoms are terrified. To be true to the psalm, I'll treat its main focus as a political crisis, a military one. But later on, we'll take a second look at these words and come back to it. For now, let's not downplay the metaphor. The psalmist speaks this way to help us feel the magnitude of the crisis. And yet, even in the face of this kind of disaster, a situation in which the world as we know it is crumbling, there are those who are not afraid. 
because they know that God is their refuge and strength. They can say, fear not. God is near when everything else falls apart. That brings us to stanza two. And the message is this. God protects those who take refuge in him. The stanza opens with a dramatic contrast. We've been considering waters that are violent, dangerous, destructive. Here, we have waters of an entirely different kind. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Here we have waters that are under control, waters that are a blessing to those who are thirsty, to those who are hungry and need water to cook with, to those who are hot and dirty and need to clean up and be refreshed. Why are these waters so different? They're part of the city of God. Instead of overflowing their banks and threatening everything around them, God keeps them under control and uses them to bless his people. But most importantly, we learn that God has a city. The Most High, the Holy One, delights to dwell with people and to bless them in his habitation. As we would expect, God protects his city. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be toppled. God will help her when morning dawns. I altered the translation to toppled here and in verse 2 to show that it's the same Hebrew word in both places. The psalmist is drawing a clear contrast. Everything else might be toppling, but not the city of God. We have it explicitly in the next verse. The nations roar, the kingdoms topple. He utters his voice, the earth melts. All around, nations roar in rage. Kingdoms are toppling like dominoes. And yet, the uh, people of God are not afraid because the city of God stands secure. All the Lord needs to do is utter one word and the nations melt before. Their noisy threat dissipates entirely. This word translated melt is most often in the Old Testament associated with fear. Another meaning for the word may be tremble. So the proud, violent aggressors melt away in fear at a single word from the Most High. Contrast this, then, with the fear threatened in the first stanza. The whole earth is changing. Things that seemed immovable are being swept away. And yet there are those who are not afraid. They know that God, the Most High, is fully in control. All he needs to do is utter a single word, and it's all taken care of. And he has a city. He has people with whom he dwells and whom he delights, bless, and protect. So, um, a key question for us is how do we become residents of this city? That's where we want to be. And the answer is implicit 
in the first words of the song. God is our refuge and strength. God is pleased to receive anyone who comes to take refuge in him. It's important to note, though, that to enter into his city, we must take refuge only in him. It's no good to add God to your list of options. You can't diversify your portfolio of refuges, uh, trusting some in God, trusting some in your wealth, trusting some in your own abilities, trusting some in politics. So let's imagine an army invading your country. And as this army advances, you're trying to be safe in two cities. So as it gets closer and closer, you stay in one for a while, and you run over to the other one, then you run back to the first one, then you run back over to this one. When the attack happens, if you're caught in the middle of those two cities, you're a goner. Sooner or later, you have to commit. You have to take up residence in one city and trust one city's defenses to keep you safe. One city only. Likewise, those who come to God for refuge have to come to him alone. You either have God as your only refuge or you don't have him as your refuge at all. The wonderful news is that God is happy to receive any who come to him to put their trust exclusively in him. So the chorus in verse 7 sums it up. The emphasis at this point is on the last part of each statement. The accent is on God's goodness to those who take refuge in him. The Lord of hosts is with us. He has a city and he receives us into it. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He keeps us secure from any enemy. So, we come then to stanza three. And the summary of what this will say is that God will ultimately establish perfect peace and stability. The stanza opens by drawing us more personally into the drama. Come, it says, perceive the works of the Lord. I've changed the translation from behold to perceive because the word used isn't the ordinary word for just looking at something. A noun form of the, wor of the word is what's used to refer to visions that prophets see. And when prophets are called seers, often it's a form of this word that's used. When prophets say something like, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, they typically use this word. So the psalmist then is inviting us to do more than look out the window. He's inviting us and telling us to use spirit-guided insight to perceive and understand the things that are going on around us. So what is it then that we're to perceive? He says, come, perceive the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariots with fire. We should note three things here. 
First, God's rule extends beyond his city. He protects those who take refuge in his city, but his rule extends to the ends of the earth. This means that when we see calamity around us, when the world as we know it is changing and even falling apart, God is actually using those things to accomplish his purpose. That is good reason for us not to be afraid if, in fact, we have taken refuge in his city. Second, God's ultimate purpose is to establish perfect peace. The day will come when wars will cease. In fact, the day will come when all turmoil and trouble will cease, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For those who dwell in God's city, this is a great source of hope. As Peter wrote, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, God's rule extends beyond his city. God's ultimate purpose is to establish perfect peace. And third, God must violently destroy those who purvey violence. God must violently destroy those who purvey violence. Tragically, the enemies of God will never stop their rebellion. Sadly, they must fall under his judgment. As Paul said profoundly in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Consequently, for God to establish perfect peace, he must first bring desolations on the earth. He must break the bow. He must shatter the spear. This means that the last day will be great deliverance for those in God's city, but fearful judgment on those without. Paul told the church in Thessalonica, in Thessalonica that their steadfast faith in the face of suffering was evidence of God's coming righteous judgment. And he wrote that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. It is in that spirit that we have verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nation. I will be exalted in the earth. Despite our pretty refrigerator magnets, this is not primarily a call to the faithful, the 
quietly meditate on God's sovereignty. This is primarily a rebuke to God's enemies. In verse 6, we heard that the Lord utters his voice and the earth melts. In verse 10, we hear what he says. We have probably all seen movies that have a scene something like this. There's a room full of people in total pandemonium. People are talking over one another. People are shouting. There's confusion. And then enters the room someone with authority, the king or the general, and says, silence! And all of a sudden, you could hear a pin drop. That's what verse 10 is about. It is God saying to the rebel nations in all their turmoil, silence, be still, know that I am God. It's like Jesus standing up in a boat on the storm-tossed waters of Lake Galilee and saying to the wind and the waves, peace, be still, and they obey him. The disciples looked at one another on that occasion in terror, saying, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Jesus was in effect saying, know that I am God. We're ready for the chorus again. At its first singing, the emphasis was on God's goodness. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. At this second singing, the emphasis is on God's power. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's how Psalm 46 closes. And let's close our time this morning by drawing some applications from this psalm. I want to suggest three of them. First, a direct application of the psalm concerns how we view political uh, development. Media personalities of every persuasion make a lot of money by stirring people up to agitation and fear about what their political opponents might do. As we've said, it's hard to quell our fears. We need more than just a knowledge of a truth. We need to feel it. We need to repeat it to ourselves often and tell our hearts what is true. We need to meditate on God's goodness and his power. Remember Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. We will not fear, though the mountains topple into the sea. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Brothers and sisters, if what you're listening to doesn't sound like Psalm 46, it's probably bad for your soul. Take that seriously. Don't give in to what is entertaining or tantalizing. Set your minds on things above. Meditate on things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, 
commendable and excellent, like God's goodness and his power. Second, although our psalm seems to have political upheaval primarily in mind, there are many things that can turn our world upside down, that can cause the world as we know it to crumble away. Losing a job, being forced to move, betrayal by a friend, the failure of someone you thought you could count on, loss of a spouse, disease, injury, and disability, death, death of a child, death of a loved one, death of a spouse, your own impending death. Psalm 46 speaks to all these things. And the answer to all of them is the same. Take refuge in God alone. Remind yourself that God loves and protects those who take refuge in Him. Remind yourself that God works all things according to his plan. Wait in hope as you remind yourself that God will someday end all evil and suffering. And one more thing, bind yourself tightly to those who share the same perspective. Pronouns in Psalm 46 are plural. God is our refuge and strength. We will not be afraid. The Lord of hosts is with us. God intends us to do this together. Third and finally, the worst thing that can happen to you is not something that happens on this earth. It isn't any of these things that we've just been talking about, terrible as they are. The greatest calamity is finding yourself under God's condemnation on the day of judgment. How do you escape his wrath when he comes to judge the world in establishing perfect peace? The answer is to take refuge in him alone. There is no refuge in your own goodness. There is no strength in your own efforts to reform. Your religious activity is no fortress. Only Christ has paid for all your sins. And only he provides a refuge from God's judgment. The good news is that he gladly receives anyone who puts their trust exclusively in him, who comes to him alone for refuge, for salvation, as we call it. We'd love to tell you more. In fact, we are this morning. If you have questions and that is not your confidence, please talk to one of us. For now, though, we get to rejoice with two young people who have done exactly that. Julio Maldonado and Lydia Martin have taken refuge in Christ alone for their salvation. And we get to witness their baptism this morning. 
God is speaking to them in their baptism. And part of what he's saying is that they, citizens with us of God's city, the true eternal city that cannot topple even if everything else falls away. So as we transition to the baptisms this morning, let's join together in prayer. Glorious Father, Lord of hosts, God of Jacob, we look to you alone as our refuge and strength. We trust and entrust to you alone, first and foremost, our own souls, and then our destiny on this earth and the destiny of those we love. Enable us to remember that you are with us, that you are our force. Amen.